finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things and talk about them. Also, Andrea is my mom, and she's a librarian. I write things, but no one will pay me for them, so there's that. I'll pay you for them, but that won't make you a professional writer. No, no, that's true. Also, will you pay me for When you say pay me for them, you just mean like you're going to like make me a fucking omelet or something because you're my mom? Well, I was thinking more like, you know, like some chocolate or something. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so like I said, we read things and we talk about them. Things that are written by other people who aren't me. I don't want people to think that this is some weird podcast where I make my mom read my writing and discuss it. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. In fact, we read a book written by two other people, neither of whom are me. Uh, we read This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Motar and Max Gladstone. Yes. Uh, look, I have no disrespect to the man. That's an extremely made-up sounding name. <laughs> <laughs> it well, sounds a... like a con man's alias. I'm Max Gladstone. It sounds like a video game character from the 2000s. Yes, I could see or that. Like... Well, Max is like a huge, like that's a huge 2000s, late 90s cool guy name mighty max comes to mind so maybe like someone should write like a middle school action spy series using that name uh yeah oh i think they should they could do that uh but yeah this is a i mean i don't know if you have any background or anything in your notes but this is a it's a sci-fi novella it's an epistolary novel it's specifically like on the top level what this is how you lose the time war is is it is a sci-fi romance espionage story told through the letters, mostly through the letters, of two agents that are on opposite sides of a time travel war. So it was published in 2019, which makes it one of our most current books that we've read. And also our first book that we've read that has two authors. Yeah, that's true. So... Amal El Motar is a Canadian speculative fiction writer. She is an award-winning short story writer on her own and editor of a poetry magazine called Goblin Fruit, which I haven't read. I haven't read that either. I have read some of her short stories before this. Uh, I forget which publication specifically, but I definitely recognized her name and writing style when we started this book. And then Max Gladstone is an American author who focuses on fantasy, specifically urban fantasy, and he does a weekly serial called Book Burners on a uh, audiobook, independent audiobook website, which is kind of interesting. That's cool. Um, I thought I had read some of his stuff, but I had him confused with someone else whose I name I don't remember. I think you may have, because he also works on um, George R. R. Martin's Wild Card series. Oh, okay, then I, yeah, I definitely have. I, okay, then I don't have him confused with anybody. That's who I was thinking of, and I have read some of his stuff before, too. But the reason why I sort of pointed out the genres that they're, like, known for is because you take, like, a speculative fiction writer, an American urban fantasy writer, and you put them together, and then you create, like... A sci-fi romance it's very kind of interesting the way that they do it i mean it's i guess there's like a little bit of like urban fantasy flavor there's like i mean there's a very explicit steampunk part of this book but um it is very soft science fiction to the point of almost being science fantasy like the it's one of those things where the 
factions involved are so advanced that their stuff is just like wild and abstract and ha- like it's that kind of science fiction it reminds me of like um was that for this version of the podcast where we read flower mercy needle chain by yun Lee? yes yeah it, it reminds me of that sort of style of that kind of sci-fi i don't really know how to articulate what I, that is but yeah, i think it'll come out once we start talking about it i just want to point out that it won the two, 2019 nebula award for short story and the 2020 Hugo Award for novella, so it's award-winning. That's cool. So, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I tend to like when we're picking books. I do sort of use the Hugo novella nominations list to find more recent stuff. That's how we ended up doing uh, to be taught a fortunate, which was really good. And I, I'm, I'm spoiler, I, I liked this one a lot too. I had read it when it first came out. Because I was reading um, space opera okay. at the time. And then, you know how you finish on Overdrive and it recommends other books for you. Uh. It recommended this. And I, I, I actually, I think that what really appealed to me was the cover. Because mm. it has like, it's like a pale blue, which is very on trend with, you know, fashion. But then it has two birds. It has like a blue jay and a cardinal, which is kind of like reflection of the two characters, red and blue. And then red is depicted as sort of like a botanical, a kind of like science, you know, a scientific illustration. And then the blue one is kind of like pixelated, like a modern kind of like um, computer art. So yeah, it's like, glit, sort of, like glitch art sort of yeah. thing. So, I, I mean, the cover was really attractive and it's kind of like it had birds on it, you know, and it's a middle-aged <laughs> lady. I, I'm very attracted to things that have birds on it or come in that blue color, which is like... You know, it's like that blue is like the rose gold for millennials. So when, you know, middle-aged ladies see that blue, they're like, oh, this is, looks good. I like this. This is attractive. The cover of the version I read, though, was like tan. With, but it had the same image. I believe it was the same illustration Interesting. On it. Uh, yeah, no, it's a cool cover. It's I, I feel like I one of my major beefs with publishing right now is that I think this also extends to music. This is... Covers are bad now. Like, most book covers are boring and bland and don't tell you anything about the book and are very unappealing. And I also feel the same way about album covers. I think most album covers are bad now. This, So I appreciate it when there's a good, evocative cover. Especially one that, like, this ties into, like, the structure and style of the book itself. I mean, and they also do at one point the characters explicitly, like, refer to each other using those birds as a kind of, like, Schenectady. So it's cool that that's on the cover. I think we talked about this before, I guess, when we were talking about um, Tolkien, the original American illegal edition of... Uh-huh. And it had the artwork. And I kind of think that, like, some iconic books you recognize by the artwork that was relevant at the time period. Like, we mm-hmm. talked about this with the Herman Hesse book. Yeah, yeah. With the iconic artwork and then the Lord of the Rings and the Wrinkle of Time. They have these sort of iconic imagery that, like, when you see that paperback edition, you're like, that's my copy that I had and I read and it appeals to you. Yeah. I, I, I just, it's just like, man, there's, you know, you go on Twitter, you go on Instagram... There's so many great artists and illustrators working now, and it's just like, just fucking pay them to draw your cover. Like, stop 
just putting using like Canva. Yeah, like I don't want to see ever see another novel whose cover is just text over a solid color or like a star field or something. I hate it. Like, just, and this is good. This is a good break from that. It's a cool cover that looks good. Yeah, definitely. This kind of remind. I mean, we'll talk about the book when we get into it. But this kind of reminded me, like, it would make a really great graphic novel. I totally could see that. Yeah. Um, especially in the way that, that it's very like episodically structured. Obviously, because it's the alternating letters. Like the actual structure of the novel isn't. It's a little bit misleading to just call it an epistolary novel, because the way it actually works is each chapter is like a section, sort of in third person explaining like a mission or whatever that one of the characters is on and the way it kind of goes awry then they find the letter from their counterpart and then the last part of the chapter is that letter and then it like then the next chapter is a look into the life of the letter writer and then you get a letter from the person you followed in the previous chapter I also and it flips back and forth like that for most of the book I also think that the term letter should be like in air quotes because it's really sort of a loose definition of a letter because it's kind of like they're not traditional. Well, there are traditional paper letters that they write at one point, but a lot of it is sort of this imagery of like using found objects to write letters. There's one where there's a letter written on the bones of a um, a human skeleton and then there's one where the seeds are the letter and then when the one of them eats it they get this sort of sensation and sensation is the letter so they're not traditional letters like a victorian epistolary novel they're sort of modern and avant-garde ways of of communicating with each other because they're from two different factions and they're in this epic generational time war and it spans a huge period of time, and their ultimate goal is to destroy each other. And at some point, they become correspondents, and then they form this sort of relationship that's through their communications. Yeah, so there's, so the two characters are Red and Blue, and Red it belongs to a faction called the Agency, which is led by a being called the Commandant. And Blue belongs to a faction called the Garden, which is led by, like, the Garden itself. It's, like, this massive intelligence. So I found out during the research that the parts about Red were written by Gladstone, and the parts about Blue were written by El Motar. Okay, interesting. And then Red's is a technology AI machine-based society, and Blues is a biological hive mind garden society. Yeah, so the way that the, the agency works is like most of them uh, are sort of ensconced in these like pods. So the terminology is upthread is to like the future, I think. Right. And downthread is to the past. And then there are multiple timelines which are referred to as strands. So you go some amount of strands over. And I guess the further you go away, from a specific timeline, the more different, the greater disparity there is between the timeline you're entering and the one that you were leaving. Um, so they're both, I don't remember exactly, but like their bases existed like an extreme, either up or down thread. I assume they're both up thread. Um, and the way that the agency works is like most of them are ensconced in like pods 
and they're controlling these like techno organic puppet bodies and red i think is like an anomaly because she mostly walks around in her own body yeah and there's like a specific distinction drawn or like a um like a comparison drawn between her and the commandant because the commandant like never uses its its or their its own body uh and they are like very detached from humanity and they're basically an ai even though it's clear that like she red speculates like oh like the commandant must have been decanted that's the term they use at some point and must have been a person but like nobody knows who they are and they're so detached from like the being that they were that it's almost use pointless to think about them like that and then the way the garden works is like you said they're sort of more like a hive mind they're all like connected the garden and like is part of them and they're part of the garden and blue has this sort of thing where at some point early on in their life they were sick because of some sort of attack that the agency did to try and like trojan like literally trojan horse like the computer virus into the garden and so they're also sort of like weirdly detached or like anomalously kind of detached from their faction and are more independent than the traditional garden agent and i guess it's sort of like the that kind of draws them together into this like game of cat and mouse that over the course of the story blossoms into this romance yeah and i think it's interesting because the way you can see sort of in the beginning, they communicate in the technology that they're familiar with. Um, Red sends messages through... At one point, there's an MRI machine, and mm-hmm. she uses the water from the MRI. And then Blue also, in the beginning, communicates solely using um, biological things. Like I said, the bones and the seeds. Mm-hmm. And there's a tea, which is very interesting, because at some point... In the beginning, you're sort of just seeing them in isolation communicating with each other, and then they start to move within the different threads, and at one point they go to the time period of Genghis Khan, and they're involved in that, and then they go to the 1800s, and they're involved in a sort of, like, tea culture there. Yeah. There's lots of stuff about, like, ritual. They make a lot of references to, like, Mrs. Leavitt's and this, like, guide to writing letters. Like, there's a lot of, like exploration of like formality partially because i guess because they're like you know essentially like military agents but yeah it's like when they red and the agency people they like modify their bodies and they're kind of like these post or trans human figures and then blue and the garden agents will like assume assume like totally new bodies and there's lots of there's a couple parts where it's not, I don't, it's never like super explicitly stated, but like you're reading it and you're like, oh, Blue's like an animal in this this sequence. Like Red's kind of always like a person with some sort of like cybernetic modifications and a disguise. And sometimes it's like, oh, Blue's just like a lion or something because they can just be that. Yeah, because there's one communication which I found to be the most interesting is the communication is written in the bones of a mouse that was eaten by an owl. And then when the owl barfs up the remains, then I think it's Red takes the remains and opens it up and reads the letter from Blue. Yeah. And then they talk about how complex it is to try to get the owl to eat the mouse, to eat the 
bones and then create this sort of pellet that they regurgitate and then that's where he finds the letter or she finds the letter yeah well there's there's kind of throughout all of this with all the time travel stuff and their tactics there's kind of this like um what's there's a specific example i'm trying to think of but i can't but it's that thing where it's like uh, everybody just builds a part of the machine and nobody really knows what the machine is going to be, where it's, like, it's very, like, subtle and complicated the way they do stuff. They, like, show up in a time period and nudge and prod things one way or the other to change the way the time is supposed to go out, and then that's supposed to ripple up thread, but also it, like, affects things in the adjacent strands to try and, like, the imagery they always use is, like, braiding and unbraiding, where they're they're... It seems like we never really get too much insight into exactly what the beef is they have with each other, except that I guess the idea is these are just competing visions of the future, and they're both trying to ensure that the other ver- f- version of the future is destroyed and that theirs exists, and like that's what the war is about, as far as I can understand. Again, it's not like super explicitly stated. I, it's a very cold war. Like I think this whole thing is like. It's like a, it's like a surrealist Cold War. Yeah, and I think that's the point of it. The point of it is, is that neither one of them, as small cogs in this epic time war, really knows what's going on. And in fact, when Red doesn't even realize, like in the beginning, the they're taunting each other. Yeah, and then the whole purpose is to sabotage the strains, the threads of each other using these communications. And then as the story moves on, they start to manipulate the threads to make it easier for themselves to communicate. And that's what, at one point, that's where Red falls afoul of her, of the commandant, in that she, they discover what she's doing, and then she's forced to set a trap for Blue. Yeah, it's like, so, for a while, it's just that back and forth, where it's like, this one of them gets to do a mission, they find out that they've already been screwed, or, like, they can't fully complete it because of something that's happened, and then they find the letter from the other one. And then the two kind of threads, not, not supposed to be a pun on the story's terminology, but the two kind of threads that emerge are Red's increasing paranoia about the Commandant finding out what she's doing. Which eventually does pay off in the sort of more the kind of the the uh, final act and conflict of the story, and then the other thing is that eventually this being starts showing up called the Seeker. That's this like shadowy figure of unknown origin and allegiance that keeps showing up af- at the end and consuming whatever's left over of the uh, the letters. And at one point, Red sets a trap for the Seeker, and they fight to a standstill and end up hurting each other but neither accomplishing anything and then the big twist should i get into that now yeah sure so the big twist is that the seeker is red because what happens over the course of the story is at one point amidst all this paranoia about the commandant finding out and like having to hide their true intentions and i think there's like very clearly like a um you know there it's very easy to do like a queer reading of this right well, I think it, uh, yeah, definitely because they both clearly use the pronoun she and her. So they clearly identify in whatever society they belong to as females. Yeah, but also it's like, 
they belong to these rigidly structured societies. And even the garden presents itself as like hippy dippy. It's still like this like clear, defined, rigid system with its own set of values, and their love kind of runs counter to those values. And there, you know, there's this fear about the authority figures finding out. But so what ends up happening is the commandant like is basically it's like your classic uh you know story about someone that's too rigid or is like a robot or whatever like the commandant basically figures everything out but doesn't put it together because they don't understand the concept of love yeah because they're like they see all the evidence and they see essentially the shape of the whole novel of them intertwining and meeting up and stuff and all that the commandant can conclude is that blue is trying to flip red like she doesn't put it together that they're or they don't put it together that they're in love uh, so the commandant comes up with this plan. Uh, she thinks they haven't con that red hasn't contacted blue. So the commandant comes up with this plan to create like this poison, like to make like a plant that is the, a letter that is saying like, Hey, I want to meet up with you, but to prove it, you got to eat this plant that is poison. Uh, and Red is stuck in the situation where she can't. If she tries to warn too hard to warn Blue, then she'll expose herself. She can't keep in contact with her. Like she, she has to basically. She ends up sending one last desperate letter that's like, "Hey, don't read my next letter." And then she sends the this poison plant, but she also has a secret message blended into the poison. Um, so the plant is created. By a lab that the com the commandant is in charge of. Yeah, and so it's specific. It's the first time that in the in the story where red and blue don't create the letters themselves. It's created by the lab, and then the seeds are given to blue, who is in a time thread. It's sort of like the eighteen hundreds, and she's a naturalist. Yeah. A botanist, and she grows the plant, and the plant ends up being like some variant of belladonna. Yeah, and this is where it all gets very like Byronic and tragic. And so Blue ends up eating the poison because it's like this impossible situation they're stuck in. And there's like, one of my, I think my favorite letter is the one that Blue writes about eating a poison, where it's like, do you really think like it's this thing where it's like you have betrayed me but i understand why you've betrayed me but also i'm kind of disappointed that it's not cooler the way you betrayed <laughs> me and i can't believe you thought that i wouldn't be like the, you know that i would be able to just like cut things off and leave and that i wouldn't be compelled to consume this and to see what happens and then um so blue basically eats the poison and dies and then red comes up with this plan to go, like, down thread and infiltrate the garden and find Blue while she's sick as a child or neophyte or whatever and sort of inoculate her against the poison. And the big metaphorical thing that happens here is they both kind of become parts of each other. Um, so the Seeker is Red, who's going back through the timeline and consuming the letters and taking these pieces of Blue into herself to kind of, like, become this sort of hybrid being that will be able to get past the garden's defenses. And then when she does that in this sort of, like, wild, abstract chase sequence, that's sort of the big climax of the story, she finds Blue and 
inoculates her, so they both have pieces of each other in them, and they become these kind of hybrids that sort of are these, like, impossible figures within their own societies, but who fit together, and that's sort of, like, the end of the story. But I think also it sort of brings it completely full circle, because what allows red to be able to communicate with blue and to be attracted to blue in the beginning of the story is the fact that they have this commonality that they don't know about. Yeah. So by inoculating her to resist the poison from the final letter gives her this sort of opening and this sort of relationship to red that lets them start this conversation. So it's kind of like a circular thing where... You know, she sends the letters, they become friends, they become something else. She gets poisoned, she inoculates her. It's a sort of like circle time loop that they create for themselves where their relationship is the only thing that's in that circle. Yeah, and then they, they go rogue at the end. Like yes. the end of the novel is them being like, we're going to make like our own future that is counter to these two oppressive futures that they came from. And they're mm-hmm. going to end the time war through the power of love or whatever right but i think a lot of it sort of it does it reminds me of this sort of um this kind of premise this victorian premise of like this secret love yeah you know this where they send letters to each other and then also sort of the language of flowers which is another big thing in victorian times where people would send secret messages based on what kind of flowers they would have like in you know on their posies or whatever and it's kind of like also this sort of victorian kind of feel about like women's companionship which i think is kind of like a lot of men didn't understand like women you know like emily dickinson and this whole thing where Mm -hmm. they would have these epic friendships and they would have these letter writing you know a lifetime of writing letters to your best friend the kind of feel to it but sort of in a modern way because at first i thought it was gonna be like is this gonna be a conversation about how people don't communicate anymore because that will kind of be like boring but it's not that at all it's kind of like an extraordinary friendship that you could have. Yeah. You know, it's like Romeo and Juliet. Like, they're from two different factions, but they find a way. But the reason why they find a way to be together is because they've been together through many different time loops that they are not even aware of at this point. hmm I kind of... I really... Like, the one part where I talked about where the, bone, the bones of the... Um, Pilgrim in this sort of religious movement become one of the messages really made me think about like a canical for Leibowitz. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that. Yes, I, I totally get that. There's a lot of that, like though, where things are left behind and there's, you have to interpret stuff. There's a part where, sort of near the end, I think this is the message that sort of prompts Red to become the seeker. She's like moping around in like an apocalyptic. London, I think, yeah. might be a different city. Um, and she goes into like the underground and finds this like message embedded in this old like ad mural with this like dying boy on it, which is a <laughs> weird thing to have in an ad. And there's this, she acknowledges like, I'm probably not the first person to see this message, and like they probably had totally different interpretations of it. 
But she reads this as this, like, final message from Blue, which then prompts her to come up with this plan to save Blue, which it turns out she had already had been going to do because it's a time travel story. Uh, And there's, like, lots and lots of talk in the book about, like, what are they, is it called? Steganography, where it's, like, hidden messages and writing. And it's, like, the there's a hit the poison is the hidden message in the fake letter but then hidden in the poison is another letter from red to blue um and so there's all this like nested communication which again i think like reads into that sort of to the queer reading where because it reminds me of like you know you read about the history of like you know all of these like codes and stuff to like show that you're like into dudes or whatever without getting you know your head stoved in and you know these sort of marginalized communities having to come up you know even going back to like early christianity and shit like all of these communities having to come up with these complicated codes and messages because the dominant society does not understand and is actively hostile to them well, I think I, I mean, I kind of mentioned the same thing when I talked about the Victorian love letters and mm-hmm. using like flowers as like a coded message it's the same thing except i think they do it in a really sort of unique way like there's one where she's like a trapper yeah and the code is like written in like the entrails of like an animal that she's hunting so i think there's kind of like like that like but it's kind of like when you you become aware of something and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere you go so you know it's kind of like that so my question to you is: Is this a romance novel? Yeah, it's definitely a romance I novel. I think so. I mean, that's the ends up being the main point of it. But like, let's talk about there is like an obvious flaw to this novel. Uh, I guess I don't think it's that bad, but it's like it goes on for quite a while. Well, it's weird to say that because the book is very short, but a good percentage of it in the beginning is just this cycle of like. Do a mission. Ah, it didn't work. Here's a letter. <laughs> I made your thing not work. Isn't that funny? I, I, do you eat food? <laughs> That's like literally a conversation they have, which is cool. Like it feeds into the themes uh, of like the, or it's it helps illustrate the differences between their factions because it's like Blue has this whole thing where like she doesn't need to eat, but she still does, and there's this. But that goes on for a while, and like it was sort of like every chapter. For the first few chapters, I would get to it, and I would be like, okay, and something's going to happen now. And I think, like, ultimately, it's fine because stuff does start happening. You get the stuff with the the Seeker, which initially is really just, like, it's the same structure of chapters, but at the end it'll be like, and then the Seeker appeared and ate the, like, bird or whatever that they were talking through. But then, and then you get the stuff with the Commandant, and, and like, that sort of comes to a head. But... I mean, I, I I could have said for it to some stuff to just happen earlier. I, I do, like, appreciate the amount of characterization we get out of these parts by the end of the story. But yeah, it's a little, like... It feels for a little bit, at least, that it's kind of spinning its wheels in the in the earlier parts of the story. Yeah, and I found, like, some, I found, like, some of the sort of story letter writing was sort of more compelling than others. I like the one about the pilgrim mm-hmm. and I like the part about the where she was the botanist and but I felt like a lot of it kind of was like 
she just went to different time periods and sort of reacted to what was happening there. And I felt like that kind of, like you said, kind of dragged it on a little bit. But I mean, it's kind of a fast paced novel. It's only what, like 200 pages and it gets to the point at the end and it's kind of, it has a successful sort of satisfying resolution at the end. And so then it, and it also kind of has that modern thing where you have to have like a little opening where you could possibly write a sequel. Yeah, I definitely don't think it needs a sequel, but I could maybe see them doing it. I'm not sure what that would even, like, I mean, mechanically, like, it would be about them, you know, ending the time war, but I don't know what that would be about thematically. I mean, I guess if it's just, like, about, like, here's what happens after the grand romance is, like, resolved. But, like, I don't know if that's as compelling as, as, I mean, that's constantly the problem with, like, once the characters get together, if the story's about them getting together, it's like, where do you go from there? Uh, but I think a lot of it early on, it's, there's a fair amount of just, like, just sort of, like, commentary on tropes about, like, alternate histories and timelines. Like, there's a segment where one of them, I think it's Red, goes on, like, a mission to Atlantis, and it's, like, clearly uh, riffing on, like, a bunch of different Atlantis tropes. There's a very, like explicit reference to the donovan song where they t- where they're like w- women children and gods get off first while they're evacuating the island uh and they like talk about like oh you know atlantis there's a bunch of different atlantises you know across history and then there are atlantises that show up in like all the different strands and it's like this sort of recurring theme that they're not really sure like why it happens but it happens over and over again across all these timelines. Yeah. And then also within individual timelines. Uh, there's a part... I think my favorite one of those is when they go to, like, the steampunk world. Uh, London next. The same day, month, year, but one strand over is the kind of London other London's dream. Sepia-tinted, skies strung with dir- dirigibles. The viciousness of empire acknowledged only as a rosy backdrop glow, redolent of spice and petaled sugar. Mannered as a novel, filthy only where story requires it, all meat pies and monarchy. This is a place Blue loves and hates herself for loving. Which, like, pretty much sums up exactly my feelings about Steampunk 2, where it's like, you know, it's some dork-ass bullshit that whitewashes over colonization, but also, you know, airship go... (laughs) (laughs) And I like that. Um, Are they telling us that they actually read Neil Stevenson? Like, they're, they're... (laughs) <laughs> but what yeah was that book the, the one that he won the hugo award for the diamond age oh the diamond yeah that's the diamond age <laughs> but yeah i don't know i've read a shit ton of steampunk stuff and it's fun but yeah the, i like the like sort of cheeky acknowledgement of like yeah this is sort of like kind of fucked steampunk is kind of fucked up but also it's very fun and so I... like I've only read one steampunk novel, and it was uh, the Jim Butcher one that he wrote, mm. the Aeroless or something, like Aeronaut or something. But anyway, the it's like every there's a got to be a bajillion <laughs> steampunk novels called the Aeronaut. Uh, but it's like, do they always have to like hang from a string on from a dirigible at gotta, one point? You gotta do that. Uh, That's required of the steampunk novel. Yeah, and then that re- part like that paragraph that i read sort of opens up this other reading where it's like it's like uh, you can almost sort of read 
these I'm not even sure if I totally have this thought together where it's like the the different strands and timelines become kind of a uh, kind of hmm? I just want to tell you the name of the Jim Butcher novel because it gets even better it's called the Aronauts Windless Windless? Windless L-A-S-S okay what's a windlass? (laughs) it's like a cutlass but it's windy (laughs) I was going to say, like, you can kind of then read the strands as being, like, a metaphor for, like, literature or different... A windlass is a type of winch used especially on ships to hoist anchors and haul up mooring lines, especially formerly to lower buckets into and hoist them up from wells. So, so definitely something you would hang on to yeah. in a dramatic scene. Uh, <laughs> but you could sort of, like... I think in a way then the war kind of becomes like about, it becomes like a metaphor for like writing and you're like trying to, I mean, they're essentially like, they've got all these strands laid out before them, which are these pre-existing sort of genres and archetypes. And you're trying to like craft and weave them together in a way to create the thing that you want without it just being, just replicating that stuff. And then, you know, you, you kind of... <laughs> I don't know. I think maybe at that point the factions become like what, like publishers or just like society. Like they become these constraints, and then these two characters sort of like connect and are like they bust out of the the constraints at the end. I don't know if that's like a fully formed reading on this, but I think that there's at least some of that in here because a lot of the places they some of them are just like the past. Like you said, like they they hang out with Genghis Khan. But there's like this, uh, like more than one, like a post-apocalyptic one. There's like the Atlantis kind of mythical fiction thing. There's the steampunk one, which they go back to like a couple times. There's like this whole like sci-fi thing where there's like a planet that's going to like hatch into a monster. And then like blue has to fight it to protect red because like the garden is trying to kill her with this space monster. And there's like a whole space opera part where there are like ships crashing into each other and then they like retreat from the space opera and like a different into like the distant past or whatever i do i think that see that's the kind of thing where i was thinking that would make a really great like graphic novel because there's lots of like action that can be visualized in a really dramatic way i think it's interesting experiment it just taking two authors and putting them together to write one book i i it makes sense to me that one of them wrote one character, one of them wrote the other character. I wonder... I assume that that means that they wrote the letters and then also the parts about them. I would So, like, each so. chapter has half... Is half one author and half the other? Because each chapter is half letter and half non-letter part? But I wonder how much of it they... like. Like, if they wrote the letters and then wrote the action afterwards? Well, yeah, that too. But also, like, how did they plan the story out together? Or were they improvising? Like, that's... would I would be interested to learn how much of this... Like, is this novel essentially a role-play log? Or did they plan it out and then just write the parts together? Like, when Blue gets a letter from Red, is that, like... Is the author responding to the letter or just, like, writing the next part of their pre-decided story? I don't know, but I know that Gladstone has something to do with writing role-playing handbooks. Yeah, okay. Well, that makes sense. And I could... I I would be really interested to see... To find out if that was the case. 
Like, does, does it make sense what I'm saying? Where it's like, it's, there's oh. a difference between like, okay, we sit down together and we're like, okay, so this part, Red's going to write this letter and then Blue's going to do this in response. It's a vastly different writing technique than, okay, here's the letter. Now, come up with your thing. Well, how does it, I don't know. I've, I've never written with a writing partner. I've never written because I have no interest in writing anything. But you have written with a writing partner. Well, yeah, every time I've written with a writing partner. So wait, so how does it go? Does it go like you come up with an idea and you slap hands and you go home and you write it then you come back? Or do you sit there with two computers and write at the same time? Like how does it work? Uh, well, the way it works is one person has a computer and the other person like lays on the couch 10 feet away and fucks around on their phone. Uh, no. So every time I've written with a partner, we've just sort of talked out developing the story together. And sometimes we've gone off and written one part and written the other, but we always have like the outline we developed together to go off of. But the structure of this story leads me to believe that they couldn't, they could have worked another way where it is just like, I write my part and then you write your part responding to my part. And then I write my part responding to your part over and over again, which is a really interesting structure for a story and, like, it almost feels like they could just go and write this again in a completely different way if that was the case. Just by making different choices. Which, like, in a sort of strange meta way, sort of feeds back into the themes and style of this story. Uh, I don't think it's, like, a problem either way. I, I do think the the latter version where they're responding to each other is more interesting, but I don't... I, I think so, too. But I think at some point there has to be this sort of melding and sort of blending because at some point after the first draft is done it goes to the editor and then the editor says you guys got to do this or make these changes or do that and then i think at that point it becomes both of them oh i'm sure together that's the so case. Yeah. kind of blurs the sort of distinction about who wrote what part there, yeah that, that, that makes sense um another thing i could say i say was but like i've written also collaborative poetry and almost every time i've written collaborative poetry it does work like that where it's like i write my line and you don't know what it is until you read it and then you write your line and we alternate and those can go into really wild places either because you're sort of daring yourself to surprise the person and take like a left turn off of what they expect you to write or just because you're different people, and so it's like I write a line imagining what the next line is going to be, but you have a totally different perspective than me, so you write something that I would never have thought of, and so it can drive things into really interesting places. Like, I wonder how much of the ending they had in mind when they started writing the story. But here's the thing. If you write, if I write a line of poetry, and then your response has to be that line of poetry, by the time you get to the third line where you're writing it, you're not only writing that line, but you're also thinking of some kind of variations of what my second yeah, response exactly. would be. So your mind is kind of, you're not just like a, like a you're not a robot. You're not mm -hmm. just like line, written, hit enter, next line. You're sort of, your mind is churning now based on what you've already written and the possible things that could be written. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be, if they did write it like that, where they don't know what the other person is going to write, I think it would be really cool if they just wrote this again, but changed characters. Yeah. Because uh, I, I would love to see that. That if, would if, be the ultimate sequel. But I think it kind of appeals to 
someone whose mind works like yours that loves like noodly jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, is it because then it it becomes improvised. Um, it kind of reminds me of this whole thing about like when the Great Gatsby just made it into the public domain, and then people were like let's fuck this thing up like and then started making all these weird changes and then kind of was like everybody was riffing and improvising on so many different ways and then finally someone said you know like Great Gatsby really isn't that great of a novel and then I everyone think, was like Phew. you could do this on your own with someone in the, something in the public domain too where if you could just take a novel that's an appropriate amount of chapters and delete every other chapter and write a new <laughs> Chapter to fill in the blanks. Like, someone could do that. That would be cool. There's also, um, do you, similar single-person variant. Uh, what is it? There's a Italo Calvino book called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, I think. Where it's, like, they're essentially short stories that all have the same, like, opening paragraph. I think that's the premise. Actually, let me look it up. Um... But I think what I like about this novel is that they take, all, like you said, all these different sort of literary tropes, like this is a steampunk thing, this is a Victorian romance thing, this is a time travel thing. Knowing that all of these different genres have like problematic, fundamental problematic issues, like the whole thing with like time travel is you can always just say like... I'm a time traveler, I change things, and now they're the way that I want. They kind of really stay in the rules of that genre, and then each episode kind of fits thematically together, but also is in its own sort of universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I told Which I think is interesting. The, I looked it up. The book, I, I was wrong. The book is called If on a Winter's Night to Travel, but the structure is more like each section is two chapters, but they're supposed to be two chapters from two different books, I think, is the structure. But there's another Italo Calvino book that this actually made me think of quite a bit uh, called Invisible Cities. And the premise of that is that it's like a dialogue between Genghis Khan. I think I talked about this on the yeah. podcast before. It, I, it's one of my favorite books. It's like a dialogue between Genghis Khan and Marco Polo. And Marco Polo describes these like impossible cities. And a lot of this where it's just like descriptions of like these different timelines and time periods and these strange missions these characters are on and the ways they communicate reminded me a lot of the that book where it's just like how can we like build out these concepts in like and in a really like engaging way. Uh, the other thing this reminded me of is a uh, like a there's like a spin-off from the Doctor Who novels that kind of became its own sort of franchise, sort of independent from Doctor Who, called Faction Paradox, that is about, like, a time war and, like, these, these like, houses that have, like, that do time travel and there's, like, they sort of conspire against each other. And there's lots of stuff in that about, like, nobody knows who, like, the leader of everything is because, like, then you'd be able to hunt him down and kill him in the past and every the people who are in faction paradox like have to like go back and like kill the grandfathers and shit to like turn themselves into paradoxes it's a much more like a grungy and sort of transgressive take which is weird because it's a doctor who spinoff but it is a much more grungy and transgressive take on like this kind of like baroque time travel machinations which is like my jam i love this shit even when it gets 
Like, it gets confusing, and almost every time someone tries to do it, it ends up being fucking stupid. Not here. This is well done. Uh, mostly because he really only has, like, one grandfather paradox that it has to deal with. It's not all fucking nested and shit. Um, but I do love this stuff. I think that, like, yeah, I think this is a very successful time travel novel. Sometimes time travel novels just really get... I think they also give themselves a lot of leeway by having the threads thing, like, where it's not just one timeline. Like, it's like everything is... And it's not just, like, they're explicitly connected and unconnecting and affecting each other. So it's like things... They have a lot of wiggle room to play with stuff. And also because the story is, at its core, about the relationship between these two characters and not really about the time war. Like, they get away with... You know, like, we, we have to speculate on exactly why... And how the time war even really works. Uh, because it's not, that's so not a concern of the story. I think that's one of the things that sort of makes me hesitant about. It's the same problem that I have with like magical universes that I have with time travel novels. Is that in my mind, like magic and time travel are almost like a type of world building. And For they sure. have to be, the writer has to understand the basic fundamentals of the what they are creating but i also think the there's an easy workaround which is you can also just have the thing be unknowable like you can have magic in your story and get away with not knowing how it works if the point is that it is this big unknowable thing that is more complex and powerful than the characters can understand and then i'm fine with that like as long as it's not a crutch to just have things contradict each other well, that, for no reason. Yeah. And the same thing with time travel, like, or any sort of big sci-fi concept like this. If it's so big that thinking about it gives you a headache, then I'm okay with sort of obfuscating the specifics of how it works. If the point is, this thing is, like, this impossible, like, complicated thing. Which it kind of is here, where it's like... It's not necessarily that the time travel stuff and the structure of the timelines is supposed to be like... It's, you know, like a lot of times you get stuff like that and it's like a metaphor for God. Like I said, this is more like about like the kind of... I keep using the word Baroque, but like the sort of Baroque machinations of like a Cold War where it's like plot within plot, intrigue within intrigue. You're doing this mission that you don't really understand and maybe you're only doing it because they think that maybe this thing is important to the other people and maybe they only... And it's like think it's important because they think it's important to you. And you're all just, like, smooshing against each other in these, like, weird ways. And so I'm okay with not totally having a full picture of, like, the the world because, like, I don't think we're supposed to. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it most successful. And that's what kind of the same thing that reminded me a little bit of Canical for Leibowitz is that this war has been going on for so long. Mm-hmm. And the two entities that are in the war... They don't even know each other anymore, and it's the same thing. These are like two individual people, robots, biological entities. Yeah, beings. Beings that now have a relationship, but they come from this sort of world where they don't even know what's going on. So then it kind of makes you feel like, okay, the people in this world don't know what's going on, so it's okay for me not to understand what this time war is. And But I think... These epic time wars are like a huge part of sci-fi. There's yeah. lots of books where there's series of wars that have been going on for hundreds and millions of years or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, epic space wars. Yeah. 
Like I thought about like Hyperion, like to bring back the Dan Simmons, like oh, that yeah. sort of same thing where like the scope of what's going on in the universe is so much bigger than the two people that are involved in it, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yeah, I could I could totally see that. Uh, I also just want to say that like I think this I mentioned it, but like I think this is really a very beautifully written story. I mean, there's some kind of like there's an interesting. Um, contrast between i think like some of the really poetic language and then occasionally just like these kind of like almost dopey like pop culture references like there's this recurring thing where when they write the salutation of the letters they all use like imagery or the reference like another name for the color and you know like there's one point where i think blue writes a letter to red and like writes out red in hexadecimal yeah but they'll be like, Red writes a letter to Blue, and it's like "Dear Blue, but da bu di da bu die," and it's like there's all of this like great poetic language about like you know fucking the volcano erupting and like the inevitability of like death and like you know the characters hang out and do like a mini rhyme of the ancient mariner, and then it's like boop, here's a stupid pop culture reference, and I think like some people might be annoyed by that, but it feels like real to me as a person who makes a lot of stupid pop culture references and also speaks and writes in an overly poetic way sometimes like i feel like it adds a lot of texture to the characters but there's just like some of the descriptions of like the stuff that's going on are just like really like sort of breathtaking at moments and i also think it's really impressive that like the characters feel distinct like over time as they build them up i and, like initially they it's like i can't really tell the difference between them and i kept having to like flip back and forth to check who was writing with like which character was writing which letter and stuff and then over time, they become more and more distinct in their personalities. And Blue's kind of, like, snarkier and sort of more flippant. And Red is, like, a little bit more dramatic and serious. And the differences between their two factions get really nicely highlighted. And I don't know where I was going with this train of thought. I have completely lost it. Well, uh, I read it two times. The mm-hmm. first time I read it... Just for my own pleasure. And then the second time when we decided to do it for the podcast. And I had the same reaction. I was a little bit confused by the characters. And I didn't quite understand the whole time war thing. And then when I went to read it the second time, I sort of had this previous knowledge that Red was technology-based and Blue was biological. And Mm -hmm. then I started to see earlier on in the story the sort of reference to the natural world and then the computer world and then how they sort of melded together. And then towards the end, they started talking, you know, one was not so much computer and one was not so much, like, biological. And they started to come together, this sort of hybrid language that they would use. And I felt like that sort of enriched my understanding of the story. Mm-hmm. I also really like speaking about the of the like technological and biological thing. I really, really like that uh, you have these two factions and these two characters that it's like one is aligned with like technology and one is aligned with this sort of more of a natural world and there's no judgment right like it doesn't come down on one side or the other there's no like bullshit like nature versus technology and nature is obviously better thing which we get all the time which i just find infuriating because it's like 
Um, yeah, like, I get it. Like, global warming is bad, and technology has done some really awful stuff. But it's like, you, you know, people need, like, wheelchairs and, like, insulin pumps. And, like, and I know, like, a lot of times I read these things where the writer comes down hard on technology and is, like, so pro-nature. You know, it's like, you watch fucking Avatar, which, like, I like Avatar. I actually think it is a good movie. But you watch it, and it's like, yeah, technology bad, says the guy who at the time is making the most technologically advanced movie that had ever been made. And it's like, you fucking hypocrite. And I like that this, like, ultimately, the point is like a synthesis, right? If one character represents technology and one character represents biology, they both intermingle their parts and then also come together in this union. And it is about finding this balance, which is like the only place I am a centrist is in that I think that it's cool to have trees and also iPads. <laughs> um. Well, that's a lot of people on Twitter. They're on Twitter talking about how, you know, we're destroying the environment, and it says, you know, post it from my iPhone. So. Well, yeah, but, like, look, it's not about the individual. That's not the... What's destroying the environment is not my me using an iPad. It's, it's you know... The iPad factory. Yeah, it's the iPad factory. Yeah. <laughs> So make I don't know I'm no expert I can't give you the answer but I like we that no science <laughs> like I like Fern Gully but like I'm glad that this <laughs> didn't turn out to be Fern Gully so what did you think like overall what did you think of the entire novel I thought it was really good I would just like if I recommend this to anyone I would be like stick through it like if you feel like a little I wasn't even necessarily bored it was just like this thing where I would start the chapter and I'd be like and then now and then it wouldn't happen and it was like this kind of not not necessarily even frustrating but just this kind of like sort of feeling and it's like if you could stick through that i think it ends up being worth it and i really like the sort of last part of it i like like i i've this like imagery of i'm saying like so much this imagery of where it's like blue has died from the poison because of this like it's so tense this like impossible situation that red gets put in with the commandant it's like this cold calculating figure but also it's like it's a great portrayal of like someone that is like higher up in an organization because it's like you have so much power and you have an understanding of how this thing works but you don't really understand other shit and it's like you're so close to being smart except for this one way in which you're very dumb and it's still fucking you over and it's like it's just it reminds me again like of role-playing games it reminds me of that feeling of when you put like your players in like a real conundrum and they're like oh you fucking bastard how am i supposed to figure this out and that sort of like tragic inevitable thing of sending the poison plant and the like desperate like that i'm getting all ahead of myself okay i like that that tension i think that's really good i like when the letter is sent and there's this sequence of blue reading the letter in the poison and there's this desperate like i hope you're not reading this please don't be reading this but if you are like i want you to know like that i love you and i'm gonna mourn you by like writing your name up and down and all across time and i thought that was good that was like really heartbreaking and then this imagery of like blue is dying and then red is moving backwards through the relationship to the beginning picking up these pieces i thought was like a really intense and interesting portrayal of like mourning that i had never really seen quite in that way it reminded me like a lot of this obviously i already sort of referenced doctor who but like that reminded me of some of like the best and most like emotionally moving moments in doctor who where it's like okay this is like a really cool emotional moment 
that you're o- you can only get by having time travel in this story. And like I feel like time travel is such a messy concept that can fuck up a story so easily like we said. But when you get like it's the thing that I love about all science fiction when you get this moment where it's like this moving, beautiful, insightful thing that can only happen in a science fiction story. You can only have that moment because it liter- it needs to have time travel. You can do it metaphorically by someone flipping through a book, but it's not the same as like you have to you become a predator whose prey is the remnants of your relationship. It's so fucking good. I love it so much. And so it's like all of that other stuff where you're like, oh, and something gonna happen is like I feel like a totally negligible complaint when you get to that moment where Red becomes a seeker. And then suddenly this little thing where you're like, "Ah," because I'm reading and I'm like, okay, there's got to be some kind of time travel twist. The seeker is one of them or they're the leaders of their factions or something. And when that piece comes together and then also it's like, you know, this beautiful heartbreaking image. It's just, it's so fucking good. I'm I'm rambling at this point, but uh, I would recommend it just for that moment alone. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. I, like you said, the writing is beautiful. Mm-hmm. The, there are parts of it in it that are really just stunning. And such an interesting sort of take on like a relationship and sort of the perils of relationships. I mean, it's like the ultimate long distance relationship at yeah. this point. I think it's very like, you know, it's the same. We read To Be Tart of Fortune at like the beginning of the pandemic. And we're like... This is the perfect slash worst time to read this because, you know, that has that long segment about isolation and so much of it. And it's like there's that sort of question at the end where it's like, did humanity wipe itself out? Is humanity worth saving? Like this feels the same way because it's so much of a story. It's a story about people connecting across like these massive distance, both like physical and chronological and metaphorical. Like, I mean, it is a. Like you say, yeah, it's like a story about a long-distance relationship, but it's a really, like, beautiful and moving story about a long-distance relationship. I also think, I mean, you talk about the Commandant, like, deciding that Red needs to do away with Blue. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the greater scheme of being able to travel around and manipulate time and change time threads, two people's relationship really wouldn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. Especially since they're not, like an active part of history. Mm-hmm. They're sort of like these ancillary characters that embed themselves to do a specific task. Yeah. It's also like another thing that's sort of in the background is like the Sisyphusian nature of this whole fucking enterprise where it's like because they're pushing and pulling against each other and tearing each other's threads apart, it's like what... By the end of it, it's like... It's not just that we don't really know quite how the time war works or what it's about. It's also, like, pretty clear that no matter what it's about, it is fucking pointless. But I think it's kind of like, instead of the Commandant being like, we need to get rid of Blue because this person is disturbing the threads, could it be like... I think they're trying to get through Blue to attack the Garden, is, like, the Commandant's actual goal. Right, because they can't get into the Garden because they're not biological entities. Yes, it's yeah. very complicated. I mean, the more you think about it, the layers are just sort of, you know, it's it's very complex. It's it's a lot more complex oh. than what you believe when you first start reading. I remember the thing I was trying to say earlier when I forget, lost my train of thought when I started talking about the writing. The characters are become very distinct, but also I think this collaboration works really well because 
you really could have told me it was by one author and I would have believed you. Even though the characters read differently and, like, are clearly, like, different characters, it didn't feel like two... It didn't feel like two stories grafted together. It felt like one cohesive story told through these two intertwining yeah. things. So, like, it's huge props to them for, for being really solid collaborators, as far as I can tell. Yeah, and I think that just the basic premise, like, let's take an epistolatory novel, let's take a sci-fi novel, let's take a romance novel, let's take all these sort of genres within a sci-fi writing, and let's meld them together into this time travel love story. It's just really, it's really interesting, and I really think it's really forward-thinking, and I think it's kind of fresh. Oh, yeah, no, this feels like, this feels like a novel from, like, ten years from now. Like, it does really feel like a really... Uh, cutting edge sort of thing. It's not like it's it's not like throwbacky at all. It, even if it is like referencing these other sort of genres and other works and stuff. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like you know how people say like George Saunders is, is like a technical writer. He's mm. a writer's writer. I feel like if you are a writer or you're interested in writing, that this is sort of a really great like take on how you can do something like this yeah i think so i would agree with that and i think it's also interesting because i and i'm surprised you didn't bring this up about this sort of like writing partner tradition that's like usually not found in fiction but found in like screenwriting and Uh, movie making that's true and then sort of bringing that kind of like team kind of writing to a piece of fiction kind of gives it like a cinematic feel Mm-hmm. Which I think is very interesting. I mean, I sort of get that. It, this also, I feel like we talked about it a little bit with, um, or this was something I ended up saying about the Pattern Master that I feel is also kind of true about this. Where this feels like it is, this is unfilmable. You could not, you could do it as a graphic novel, like you said, and I think it would work really well. I don't think you could do this as a movie or a mini series. I mean, if you did, you would have to like expand so much, and I feel like it would totally kill the structure. I mean, it's hard in general to adapt a story that's, like, letters, but this is, like, so big and abstract that I have a hard time imagining what this... Unless it was just, like, a very artsy animated film. That's what I was thinking. It would make, like, a really cool, like, anime series if they had to... If they had to film it, because God knows, like... Netflix will try to film any (laughs) shit that they can find. That, That I could see would be... Like, you know... I almost think about, like, uh, like, I feel like we keep referencing 90s stuff for some reason. But, like, you know, the 90s anime OVA, I could see that adapting it in that kind of style where it is very, very stylized, you know, with some, like, fucking good-ass music. You could maybe do it. I still think it would not quite have the same impact as the book, but I have a hard time imagining what, like, the live-action version of this would be. I kind of like how much I want to see like a murder bot TV series. Mm-hmm. I do not want to see a TV series of this. Yeah, aren't they making a murder? Are they? They should. They should be. I feel like I, maybe they are. I don't remember. See, yeah, murder bot though. Yeah, that, you totally adapt that. This I don't. I think it would be incredibly hard to, and would probably like you would end up making something where the people who like the book would be like, yeah, this is good, but it's not as good as it. And the people that have not read the book would be like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Uh, 
but yeah, it is. I I can't really think of a ton of like pro like collaborative pros like this. I mean, I there definitely is stuff like that. I mean, I mean within science fiction, you have like Larry Niven and the other guy whose name I can't remember. Do you remember his name? Dave Pornell or something like that. <laughs> That's not right. Uh, but Larry Niven has the co-writer that he writes with. Larry Niven's co-writer. Is I feel so. <laughs> I feel like a dick. I feel really bad. I'm gonna look up what his actual name is. Insert some uh... Jerry Pornell. <laughs> Pornell, maybe P O U R N E L L. Um, Larry and Jerry were right? together. Yeah. Uh, what what actual stuff did they? I feel write like as a librarian, I'm allowed to say to call him by his first name. They wrote the Moat in God's Eye and Lucifer's Hammer. Like, I mean, I dig those books. Like, that's like I can't really think of a ton of other ones. Um, but it's an interesting concept. Uh, I think you really got to be confident in the other person to do something like this. Because it's... If they're, like, physic... Like, it's a different thing if it's, like, you're essentially doing, like, a two-person's writer's room and you're coming developing the story. But if you're both literally writing the prose, like... Yeah, I think you got to really, like, have faith that the other person's going to deliver. Because otherwise I can see it being a really, like frustrating and sort of nerve-wracking experience not that this i mean i don't know this could have been that it doesn't read like it was i just googled famous writing teams and the first one that comes up is J.R.R. tolkien and c.s lewis i mean they didn't write together but they talked to each other a lot i mean we like know that they kind of pushed each other to write things i don't think there's anything that exists that's a straight-up collaboration well we forgot one of the most uh well-known writing teams, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. Sorry, Neil Gaiman fans. Sorry <laughs> to disappoint you. I mean, that book's really good. That's another one where it, I I don't know what the breakdown was on that, but that's another one where if you didn't know, you could probably just assume it was one person. Um, but I also feel like I can tell the elements in that, right? Because I know those writers so well, where it's like I know which idea was whose idea. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But that was another one where they said was unfilmable, and the TV series turned out to be. Yeah, but good. I think that was bullshit. You could totally film. Like I read that book, and I was like, you could film this. I mean, I think there's a lot of. It's got the yeah, like every Terry Pratchett thing, or like um, Hitchhiker's Guide, where it's like a lot of what's really funny about it is in the narration, but like the actual events, you could easily just like apply to film. I mean, I don't think I didn't even see the good one, but like I don't think it's gonna be as good as the book just because you don't. Like, have that narration. Like, Hitchhiker's Guide tried to put it in, but it ended up, like, with a couple parts. But it, like, ends up breaking up the action to just have, like, oh, here's a voice that's going to tell you a, a bit, recite a couple funny paragraphs to you in the middle of the movie. And it's like, okay. It should just say, like, dude, read the book. Yeah. Okay? Like, one, read the book. Two, watch the movie. And then three, bitch about it on Twitter for an hour. Yeah. Do you have anything else that you want to bring up? or? No, I think I pretty much covered all my thoughts for the Should most part. Should we get to the most exciting news of all from Dried Up Rain, our next comic book series? I mean, we've kind of announced this like 50 times already. I feel like we we announced it like eight episodes ago. But yeah, for the next episode will be the first episode of our new series on a comic book. We're going back to 80s DC, Proto, Vertigo. I actually look up when Vertigo actually started. Um, but I'm pretty sure this was one of the ones that kind of got grandfathered into Vertigo, like Swamp Thing. Uh, and we are going to cover Animal Man, Volume 1 by Grant Morrison. And 
A bunch of, I think, multiple artists. I can never remember off the top of my head. Let me. Nate is going to make a list. Well, I'll have a comic in front of me when we do the actual episode, so I can just shout people out. Uh, I know that uh, Chaz Truog is like the guy early on. So the the first part of this is like a like a four issue miniseries that they then extended into an ongoing but it's really i think for the most part this is the book that kind of introduced grant morrison to american comic reading audiences so this is sort of like the first step of their journey to become like one of the biggest and most influential comic book writers of the modern era uh it's one of my favorite books it's probably the closest we're gonna get to doing just like a straight up superhero book i think i've said this before um, but it's still got all that sort of weirdness that we like. There's one single issue in this volume in particular that I'm very excited for us to cover, which we won't spoil for anyone who hasn't read it. Um, but yeah, we're going to cover Animal Man. We're going to do volume one next episode. Uh, that's only like three volumes, so we'll probably just roll from that straight into Doom Patrol. Um, but we'll see in, in three months when we get to that. I'm very excited to read Doom Patrol because I watched the TV series, so therefore mm-hmm. I am an expert on Doom Patrol. And Cliff is my favorite. I really like him a lot, and I'm hoping that... He's he... really, he's good in the comic. You'll like him okay, in the comic. Good. I think you're going to like Animal Man, the character, Buddy Baker, Bernard Buddy Baker. I think you're going to dig him. He's a he's a, he's a really like likable superhero character. He's, he's very Gen X. Basically, one of the first things he does in this comic is add a jacket to it with his costume because he needs pockets uh which is a like i feel like that's such a great little bit of characterization anyway uh yeah so that's it i guess basically okay the only thing i'm gonna say is i watched the tv series the stand Uh and i never want to talk about it okay is that over it's over and it it's over that's it don't ask me about it i don't want to talk about it I want to have a conversation about the stand, but now is not the time to do it. It's it, the stand is weird, and it's weirder than people give it credit for. Because it's like I feel like I'm still traumatized from watching that TV series, and okay. I don't. All right, so Animal Man, and spoiler alert: stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.